Welcome to the Novara Law Podcast, Episode 3, Bodily Injury Basics with Brett. My name is Jenna Hilgenbrink, and with me today is Brett Windecker. Tell me a little bit about yourself and the work you do here, Brett. Yeah, so I'm a senior attorney here at Novara Law. I've been at the firm now for over three years and have been working in the um, insurance defense industry for, gosh, seven, eight years now. So I've been specializing and really focusing on first and third party auto accidents and, and general negligence claims. All right, so we're gonna start off with our disclaimer as we normally do. No attorney-client relationship is created or intended by listening to the recording of this podcast. The contents of this podcast are intended to convey general information only and not to provide legal advice or opinions. However, you can contact any one of our attorneys directly by logging on to novaralaw.com. All right, so as we said, the topic of today is gonna be bodily injury basics. So why don't we start off from the very beginning? I mean, what is the difference Uh, between a a third-party suit, as we call it, or a first-party suit. I mean, how do you explain this to somebody who's, you know, a named insured or a potential client? Well, great. Great question, Jenna. And, um, you know, just the real basics of it. We're in this world of of Michigan no-fall insurance. These lawsuits that we handle can really be divided into two categories or two claims. One's the first-party PIP. That's our no-fall insurance. This is a claim where an alleged injured person is seeking insurance benefits pursuant to their own policy of insurance and regardless of fault. So it doesn't matter if the person who's hurt claiming benefits was at fault for the accident, if they rear-ended a driver, it doesn't matter. These are all their economic benefits that's covered by virtue of their own policy. And what, what are those economic benefits? I mean, could you just list them briefly just so that we have an idea? Absolutely. So. We're really looking at a category of five different that we kind of break these into. One of those is our medical expenses. This is going to include all your medical bills, uh, your attendant care claims, that's your at-home nursing services. We kind of lump those all together as allowable expenses. We also have medical mileage. This is what's the IRS rate for you driving to and from your medical appointments. We have our wage loss benefits, which encompasses 85% pre-tax of their lost wages for three years following the date of the accident. And the final category that we have is household replacement services. Somebody coming to your house and helping you around with the the chores that you did before the accident that you're no longer able to do because of the injuries you sustained in the accident. And of course, you know, last but not least, we have attendant care, which kind of is is similar in a way to uh, to household replacement services. But regardless, it's not what we're talking about today, is it? We're talking about third party claims. No, what is what does that mean? I mean, how would you explain it to somebody who you just pick up the phone and say, Hi, I'm, I'm your attorney, you know, I represent you in this capacity. So automobile negligence or the third party claims, this is the result of a, a motor vehicle accident where uh, a plaintiff or uh, an accident victim sustains injuries as a result of negligence of another driver. So it's a different subspecies, a different category of claims outside of the first party PIP, which again, as we said, is re- irregardless of fault, you're gonna get those insurance benefits. This is solely the result of fault. We're looking at the traditional negligence factors that we've all learned, duty, breach, causation, and damages. So Michigan's no-fault insurance law allows claims to be made against the at-fault driver when the injured person is less than 50% at fault for the accident and when they have sustained a threshold injury. Okay, so it sounds like we have two things here, a fault and a threshold injury. That is exactly right, Jenna, and that's how we explain these types of cases. When we do get that initial phone call from a client who unfortunately has been sued 
and is now faced with a lawsuit regarding automobile negligence. So there's two things and there's two ways we kind of separate how we evaluate the claims and how we defend the claims. When we're defending the claims, the first thing that I like to look at and the first thing I like to discuss with our, our clients in these matters is, is fault and their liability to being involved in the accident. So again, as we discussed and we hit on earlier, a plaintiff is more than 50% at fault is not going to be able to collect on auto negligence claims against the at-fault driver. What we have here in Michigan is called comparative negligence. So we compare the negligence of the plaintiff and the defendant. And if that plaintiff's fault lies greater than 50%, they're not entitled. And to take this one step further, if this were to go to a jury trial and a jury were to assess liability, a classic example, um, a jury comes back and says that the plaintiff was only 30% at fault and the defendant was 70% at fault, the plaintiff's recovery will be reduced by that 30%. So to make numbers sake, a million dollar policy, jury awards a million dollars, but they also find the plaintiff to be 30% at fault for the accident, their damages were going to be reduced by the 30% and their final uh, judgment would be a $700,000 award. Is there any situation where we can presume negligence and maybe bypass this whole calculation? Absolutely, Jenna. Unfortunately for our clients that we defend in these lawsuits, a, a uh, rear-end accident where our, our client has rear-ended another individual on the road, there's going to be a presumption of negligence. So it's going to be presumed that the striking driver or the at-fault driver is 100% at fault for the accident. Now, there is one way to uh, get around the presumption of negligence for a rear-end collision and other aspects of, of fault and reliability in these claims, and that's when there is a sudden emergency. The sudden emergency defense doctrine, this is in essence uh, when a defendant is confronted with such a sudden emergency that is unusual or unexpected in the situation, this is the most important part, is not of his or her own making. I really feel like we need an example here. Absolutely. So we've defended uh, or raised this defense in numerous cases here. Um, some of them that we've seen is when a, a driver suffers a medical emergency behind the wheel and unfortunately causes an accident because of that. Other times we've had situations when drivers are confronted with debris in the road, a, a flying tire, whatever the case may be, but they're faced with some sort of emergency in the roadways that cause them to take an evasive action, which may have then led to an accident. But the crux of the matter is when we're looking at the sudden emergency and trying to use it as a defense is this, the emergency that the driver is faced with is not of their own making. So when we started this conversation, we said there was fault and then there was a threshold injury. It sounds like we've kind of wrapped up the whole fault area. So what's next under fresh, uh, threshold injury? Definitely, yeah. So th threshold injury, this is the second hurdle that we have advise clients and, and others involved is how do we analyze these uh, autom automobile negligence claims. So again, we wrapped up fault and liability and now we kind of focus on what we call the threshold injury. Uh, the threshold injury in, in Michigan's no-fault insurance law is, is comes from us in the Supreme Court decision of McCormick versus Carrier. Uh, that decision from the Supreme Court has since been codified into law and can be found in MCL 531-351. Okay, so what is a threshold injury? What does it look like? Yeah, so a threshold injury really includes one of th three things. So death, serious impairment of a body function, or permanent serious disfigurement. So these are the types of injuries that a plaintiff must show in order to satisfy the threshold requirement and be able to proceed with their automobile negligence claim against an at-fault driver. 
I feel like death, you know, disfigurement, these are things that can be readily seen, but, you know, serious impairment, I feel like that's something that could be litigated up and down. Very well said, Jenna. Obviously, death and a permanent serious disfigurement are, are noticeable. So when we're looking at permanent serious disfigurements, we're looking at scars that the plaintiff will have for the rest of their life. As such, the most litigated threshold injury that we deal with is the serious impairment of a bodily function. And with that comes another definition. So when we're looking at serious impairment of a bodily function, the question that is asked is, what does that actually mean? And what that means, we kind of break that down in three additional elements that we're looking at. The first is objectively manifested. The second, impairment of an important body function. And third is that it affects the injured person's general ability to lead their normal life. So the first one you mentioned was objectively manifested. And what have courts held what that means? So objectively manifested, what we're looking for are injuries that are observable or perceivable from actual symptoms or conditions by someone other than the injured person. So we're, what we need here, or what a plaintiff needs to satisfy this first element of a serious impairment is medical testimony or medical records showing a diagnosis, showing something that's actually perceivable from a person who is not the injured person. Okay, so not subjective complaints. And I can imagine something like looking at MRI reports, looking at x-ray films, things like that. Absolutely. Anything that can be diagnosed by looking at the inside of the body, anything that can show a tear, uh, a herniated disc, anything like that will fit this um, requirement. Things that don't fit the requirement, as we discussed, are just simple, simple complaints of pain without an actual medical diagnosis to support those allegations. And then number two you mentioned was an impairment of an important bodily function. Now, what does that mean? Absolutely. So what that means, Jenna, when we're looking at the body parts that are injured or allegedly injured in these motor vehicle accidents, the courts and, and the McCormick standard just want to make sure that this is a body function of great value, significance, or consequence to the injured person. So when we're looking at a broken nail, probably not sufficient to rise to that level. A broken hand, we can all agree that that is a value, a body part of great value or significance to the injured party. Okay, and then number three is your ability to lead a normal life, right? Yep, exactly right, Jenna. And this is one of the parts, again, that is, is very well litigated and it's looked at a lot by both the plaintiff's bar and defense counsels when we're analyzing these claims. The injury needs to affect the injured person's general ability to lead their normal life. So what that means is there must have an influence on some of the person's capacity to live in their normal manner as they did pre-accident. So are we talking about a specific time period here? I mean, does their, does their life need to be affected for years, months? Is, do we have any indication of time period? Right, so the courts have said that even a, a minor or short period of time where this injured person's life is affected could be sufficient to satisfy this third element. But the most important thing is, is that what we do as defense counsels when we're looking at these claims and how we're analyzing them is comparing the injured person's life before and after the accident. And as we said, any minor change, any short period of time that has a change 
could be sufficient to satisfy this element. So taking it back to the beginning of our conversation when we talked about you know, what we do when we pick up the phone and we talk to our insured for the first time, kind of explain the process to them, the difference between first party and third party claims, but you know, to us attorneys, there's something a little bit deeper than that. And why don't you go into that, um, you know, the interplay between first party and third party claims just a little bit more. Absolutely. So Jenna, we, we've been in this world of the past two years of, of what's been called no-fault reform. And now there's an interplay between these first party PIP claims and the third party automobile negligence actions. And this really stems from the allowance of PIP insurance policies to now maintain caps and the effect that those caps could have on an individual. PIP policies in Michigan used to be unlimited, so they'd be unlimited PIP benefits for those injured in accidents. Now, with no-fault reform, policies have certain caps that apply to how much the insurance carrier uh, will pay out on, on PIP matters, so the first-party economic damages. That brings in the interplay between the first-party and third-party accidents. Plaintiffs may now bring a bodily injury lawsuit with a claim that is seeking future allowable expenses and work loss in excess of any applicable PIP policy limit or statutory PIP cap. This is seen at MCL 500-3135-3C. Okay, so what does this interplay mean for our insureds? There is no excess exposure to consider when we are analyzing these claims. Does the plaintiff's medical expenses exceed their PIP cap? And is that something we now have to factor into our evaluation when we're analyzing damages? Absolutely. Um, work loss that exceeds the three years. These are all things that we need to now consider when we're analyzing and putting valuation on damages in these BI contexts. So it sounds like this interplay between first party and third party can get really confusing really quickly. So at what point does you know an insurance adjuster, whether on the PIP side or the BI side, um, decide that it's time to bring in an attorney? The decision to bring an attorney and for an attorney to engage in litigation, there's just so many benefits that come from that and what we can do as an attorney is when we are in litigation to drive down exposure on behalf of the insurance carriers and our clients. Attorneys in litigation, we have the ability of what we call subpoena powers. So we're able to send out subpoenas, take depositions of what we call fact witnesses, individuals who can tell us about the plaintiff's life before the accident and compare it to what happened after the accident. Also with subpoena powers, we have the ability to order and subpoena records, medical records, employment records of the plaintiff so we get a better understanding of the plaintiff's actual injuries from their own doctors and their own treating physicians rather than just relying on what the plaintiff thinks and feels. So of course, part of what we do as attorneys handling these claims is you know, reviewing medical records, interpreting medical records, and um, finding the appropriate expert witnesses uh, to help us along the way. But there's actually a bunch of other things we do throughout the litigation process that helps us move these cases along. So why don't you go into a couple of those other things? Yeah, and it's definitely something that we strive for big time here at Navarra Law, and that's to take a personalized approach to the offensive BI claims. And we do that in a multitude of different ways to always be cost conscious with our clients, but also to do a nice job for our clients so this is something that they can get past and move on with their lives. So as part of the litigation process, we're able to engage in, in written discovery. And during written discovery, we gather information regarding pre-accident life, the post-accident life of the plaintiff, their post-accident medical treatment. Moreover, we get the chance to take depositions, which is gonna be the sworn testimony of not only the plaintiff, but again, we get the opportunity to depose fact witnesses that know the plaintiff better than we will ever know them and be able to question them about what the plaintiff's life was like before the accident 
and how the accident has affected their life moving forward and at the present time. So it sounds like we can do a lot as attorneys to kind of dig into the facts um, and help our clients along both you know, on the insured side as well as the claim handler side. So taking us back to the beginning just a little bit, you know, we talked about the two legal hurdles uh, that we have to overcome in order to successfully defend against um, a BI claim or bodily injury claim, as we call it. Uh, the first one being fault or liability. The second one being a threshold injury. You know, we've talked case law today, uh, talked about what we as attorneys do on behalf of our clients. Um, overall, I think a really great podcast. Um, if you have anything else uh, you'd like to shoot us a line, uh, my email is gkh at novarolaw.com. Brett, your email? It's bpw at novarolaw.com. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much, Brett, for joining me. Uh, we hope you learned something today on this episode of the Novara Law Podcast. Check us out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just search the word Novara Law Podcast. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time. 